Hello, and welcome back to Carnell Knowledge. This is part two of episode three. And in part one, I posed the question, are central banks sowing the seeds of the next crisis? And I suggested that was the case, but I didn't then tell you why. So before I do that, let me briefly recap on what I did say in part one. Well, I started with a potted history of how we ended up with around 30 central banks worldwide using some form of inflation targeting as their main framework for setting monetary policy, even if some, like the ECB and the US Federal Reserve, don't consider themselves inflation targeting central banks, just about everybody else does. And I also talked about the argument that by using a simple rules-based mechanism, the costs of reducing inflation in terms of unemployment for the policy setter would be lowered and economies could enjoy both lower inflation and lower unemployment or higher employment and activity than when policy was left to a solely pragmatic approach. It sounds simple enough, and the path of inflation since such targeting regimes were widely introduced has been generally downward, and central bankers have understandably been very keen to take the credit for this. Back in about 2007, I went to a presentation in the City of London by the then Governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, who was talking about the inflation target 10 years on. I clearly remember him saying at that time that although the Bank of England's record against the inflation target had been a good one, for example, back then they hadn't yet had to write a letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer to explain why they'd missed it, it was too soon to say that this was down to the inflation target itself. And Mervyn King held open the possibility that it had been merely fortuitous. Now I dug out the transcript of that speech, and I have to say it isn't how I remembered it which either means I'm totally losing it, or it was in some unscripted Q&A at the end. I do remember going for beers both before and after the speech, so there could be a little false memory going on here. Wouldn't be the first time. Anyway, in some later speeches, including his 20 years of inflation targets in 2017, Mervyn King becomes decidedly less hesitant about extolling the virtues of inflation targets and taking the credit for the good inflation record the bank had managed under its target though he does reluctantly admit that there may occasionally be an excuse for policy setters deviating from an inflation target for the purposes of keeping financial markets in check. Here's a bit of that speech, the full 90 minutes of which you can find on YouTube. It would be sensible to recognise that there may be circumstances in which it is justified to aim off the inflation target for a while in order to moderate the risk of financial crises. Monetary policy cannot just mop up after a crisis. Risks must be dealt with beforehand. That was 2017, and less than 10 years earlier, the global financial crisis had wiped out trillions in wealth and virtually brought down the entire modern capitalist world and financial markets. Lord King seems remarkably com comfortable with that record. In this speech, King blames global forces for the problems suffered by the UK at that time, and indeed the origin of the crisis was in the unfettered credit explosion in the US, centred on the housing market and some of the very substandard loans that had been extended on it. It's only fair to point out the US Federal Reserve did not run an explicit inflation target at that time, indeed did not adopt an explicit inflation target until 2012, but it had certainly operated as if it did and his actions and those of the Bank of England were not very different. Lowering policy rates as inflation fell, opportunistic easing they called it, and paying little heed to what that did to credit growth. 
And it's perhaps easy to see why central banks took their eye off the credit ball. You see, when inflation targeting was being adopted, prevailing inflation rates were much higher and also had a far higher volatility. In modern industrial nations, a 2% target was usually chosen. There are some exceptions. As 2% represented a point lower than the recent historical inflation average, but above zero. Central bankers had been terribly scarred by the experience of Japan's asset bubble burst and subsequent deflation, so wanted a small positive inflation buffer before zero was hit. 2% seemed a reasonable choice. Indeed, there are other arguments for running a small positive inflation rate, which mainly rest on the fact that certain prices, and in particular nominal wages, almost never get cut. Though that argument maybe ignores the role of bonus payments. A little inflation may therefore be considered a good thing. But how little? And why 2%, not 1% or 3%? 2% was an entirely arbitrary, though perhaps not unreasonable choice for a first inflation target. But there's no reason to assume that this needed to be the target for all time. Or that an inflation target should be even invariant to the economic environment. As King noted himself in his earlier 10-year speech, the mere act of bringing inflation down to the target did two things. First, it lowered inflation expectations, but it also lowered the risk premium associated with inflation volatility. And though falling inflation enabled central banks to make matching policy rate cuts on top of falling inflation expectations, importantly, longer-term rates also fell as the inflation risk premium declined. In other words, as inflation fell, a one-for-one -one reduction in policy rates did more than just keep the monetary stance steady. It did not result in stable real rates, but instead resulted in an overall loosening in monetary conditions. You could further argue that inflation is really only an intermediate target, not an ultimate target. What do I mean by this? Well, assume that you aim for 2% inflation. Your hope is that in hitting this target on average, this also delivers full employment and credit growth that is not massively inconsistent with the growth of the economy. In a way, an inflation target is like monetarism turned inside out. Where monetarism attempts to target the rate of money growth that would match economic growth needs, allowing interest rates and the inflation rate to be determined as residuals, inflation targeting alters interest rates and allows inflation and money or credit growth to be determined as residuals. But there is no certainty that just because you choose the interest rates to deliver inflation at 2%, you'll end up with credit growth that is appropriate or achieve full employment and not deliver an under or overshoot for the economy. Not only that, but no one really seems to care. So much so that broad measures of money growth in the US, namely M3, stopped even being collected by the Federal Reserve on the 23rd of March 2006, as they suggested that this data contained no information. Subsequent attempts to recreate these credit aggregates to reflect what they were doing after the data stopped being collected have shown that over the period leading up to the global financial crisis, broad money accelerated until it was growing at many multiples of the pace of nominal GDP growth. In spite of this, central banks carried on cutting rates because inflation kept falling. The global financial crisis may have originated in the US, and the Federal Reserve deserves special blame for what happened, but they were not behaving much differently to any other inflation-targeting central bank, and I include the European Central Bank in this since, despite their two-pillar monetary policy approach, 
the importance of M3 in their deliberations had fallen to virtual irrelevance as their targets for this were consistently exceeded. Let's focus in on one of the arguments for the common choice of a 2% target, namely that it provided a buffer against zero inflation. In my view, the need for such a buffer in normal times is highly overstated. There is a common misperception about negative inflation, and that is that it's deflation. Well, deflation is a concept that's a bit like old maps of the world, where at the edge of the known world, the cartographer would write, here be dragons. And the Japan experience is to totally misunderstand what the issue with deflation there was. What really killed the Japanese economy was not falling consumer prices. That was merely a symptom of the rest of the economy's collapse. What killed it was the bursting of the land and property price bubble that was brought on by, you guessed it, inappropriately fast credit growth and lax monetary policy. Falling consumer prices is not deflation. Deflation, as John Maynard Keynes would tell us, if we could resurrect him from the dead, is a decline in the general price level. What is the general price level? Well, it includes consumer prices, but that is only a part of it. You need to throw in real asset prices too, importantly, property and land and, nom and nominal wages, that is cash wages, and you need financial assets to decline too. Japan did suffer real deflation, following its property price bubble. Land and property prices collapsed. Bad loans geared off the collapsing land and property prices wiped out bank capital and brought lending to a halt. Wages were cut in cash terms for some, easier as Japanese workers often received some of their pay as seasonal bonuses, and they were slashed. The Nikkei 225 index lost more than 60% of its value from peak to trough. But the fixation on negative consumer prices blinded central banks to the real danger excessive credit growth. So here we are, it's the early noughties, and 2% is being reached by central bank inflation targeters around the world, and in fact rather more easily than they'd bargained for, mainly because it probably wasn't entirely down to them. And all of this harks back to our previous discussion of the Phillips curve in the last episode. They're cutting policy rates as they get inflation down, but in the process they're not just keeping monetary policy steady, but instead delivering rather more easing than they're bargaining for. And with no vision on what this is doing to credit growth, they're building up exactly the same asset price problem that the Bank of Japan did all those years ago. And ironically, by not understanding that 2% might only have been a stop on the journey to lower inflation, and that the right inflation target might vary from one country to another over time and even potentially across the business cycle. It's entirely possible and with hindsight probable that the right inflation target for many G7 central banks back then might have been a much lower number, perhaps 1%, maybe much closer to absolute price stability at zero. Indeed, you can't rule out that a negative inflation rate might theoretically be appropriate for some economies at some times, depending on how the rest of the holy trinity between rates, inflation and credit was shaping up. Mervyn King raises the hypothetical question whether it would have been better to have lent against what did indeed appear to be excesses in financial markets all those years ago. He suggests that maybe central banks should have done this, but that doing so would have been taking a huge gamble. In my view, this is not even the right question, as it assumes implicitly that the inflation target rate of 2% was itself unquestionable 
and that achieving it on average would always deliver the right outcome in terms of credit growth and therefore asset market behaviour. Let me see if I can explain myself a bit better with an analogy. Suppose you're driving a car along a wide straight road. You have a number of things you need to do to keep your speed under control. You need to keep your foot from pushing the accelerator too hard. You need to keep your eye on the speedometer. And you can watch how the scenery is speeding past you in the windows. An invariant inflation target is like making only the speedometer the focus, with the accelerator the equivalent of policy rates, adding or withdrawing gas to keep the needle steady at the target speed limit. So far, so good. And while you're on the main road, that's fine. But then the road narrows. It becomes more built up and windy, and there are schools and crossings now. As the surroundings are becoming more built up, even though you're travelling at the exact same speed, the scenery appears to be rushing by at a much faster pace than when you were on the open road. In the real world, you would ease off the gas a bit, the equivalent of putting rates up. But you don't, because you only have eyes for the speedometer, the inflation target. Even if you meet the speed target perfectly by fixing on the speedometer, you could still end up with schoolchildren all over the bonnet of your car. Not good. So if not 2%, then what? Well, if much closer to zero, then this implies a higher policy rate from the central bank, and potentially a fair bit higher, as the lower inflation rate will also likely deliver a lower inflation risk premium, as well as lower inflation expectations, resulting in a generally looser monetary setting and requiring an equivalent offset from higher policy rates. Of course, right now, the problem for most central banks is not getting inflation down to target, we're getting inflation back up to meet it. So what should they do now? Well, it turns out that inflation targets are virtually useless at a time like this. They're supposed to be symmetrical. That is, central banks should spend as much time and effort in pushing too low inflation up as in pulling too high inflation down. But low rates no longer work to push inflation up, as we noted in the previous episodes. The descent and flattening of the Phillips curve means that to get inflation up to 2%, we'd have to create an improbably low rate of unemployment, and that would require a policy stimulus so large that it would almost certainly create considerable issues elsewhere in the economy. Indeed, all these attempts by central banks, the Bank of Japan, ECB, Federal Reserve, Bank of England, to ease monetary policy enough to push inflation to its 2% target are creating masses of money through quantitative easing, low, zero, or even negative interest rates and the myriad of other policies that basically mean anyone can have any amount of money they want for almost nothing. Given that excess credit is not delivering in terms of inflation, this looks as if it will go on for some time, and probably new and even more distorting methods will be devised to try to achieve the 2% inflation target. But has anybody stopped to ask, is this a sensible thing to try to do? Is 2% the right number? Maybe we should be content with 1%, or something closer to zero. Put it this way, when was the last time anyone in your country marched down the street demanding higher inflation? Higher wages, yes, but that doesn't really happen anymore. And at some stage, this excess credit will manifest itself in the sort of misallocation of resources from which the next economic and financial crisis will emerge. I don't know exactly where, but a likely candidate would be in the higher risk credit markets where excessive liquidity has driven spreads down to levels where you simply aren't being adequately paid for the additional risk that these assets represent. 
Wherever this crisis does burst out, it will probably make the global financial crisis look like a picnic. We've had a decade of excessive stimulus since then, and this has only been expanded under the COVID-19 pandemic. You might be wondering what I'd do about all this. Unfortunately, we are so far down this road of low, zero and even negative rates that returning to a more productive and stable framework is virtually impossible from where we are today. And it will require an unwinding of current policies which will inevitably create a great deal of discomfort in asset markets. It's almost a case of we can't get there from here. Of course, we can, but we will need to do so extremely gingerly, and it will take years, decades even. Eventually, we can adopt a framework where there's no single target, but central banks try to steer a path between the trinity of inflation, interest rates and credit growth that offers the best combination for sustainable growth with the asset markets in sync with the real economy. There will be times when this requires the inflation rate to be kept very low, and interest rates run a bit higher if credit growth is running too fast and threatening an asset price bubble. Equally, there may be times when, even though the inflation rate is running higher than 2%, there may be an argument for monetary easing with lower rates if credit growth is too weak to support a growing economy. It's a more complicated policy framework than an inflation target, and loses some transparency as a result. But transparency is not the be-all and end-all of the policy if it is otherwise fundamentally damaging. And let's face it, what proportion of the general public genuinely has the faintest idea how the central bank of their country works? Arguing for transparency of policy rather assumes that a decent chunk of the population actually cares less about this sort of stuff. It's an improbable and elitist sort of view propagated by people who are entirely out of touch with the real world. My personal opinion is that most people don't care exactly how the central bank operates, as long as their policies keep them in a job, keep prices from fluctuating too wildly, and enable them to have the occasional pay rise. And that's where I'm going to leave it this time. It's been a bit of a marathon, this one, which is why this episode has taken so long to get out. But hopefully, it's been worth it. Future topics are likely to include why forward guidance is basically forward nonsense, and why negative rates are such a bad idea. If you have something you want me to talk about, drop me a line to anchor.fm forward slash Robert Carnell. Thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed this, please forward it to friends or colleagues. And if you've hated it, forward it to your enemies. It all helps with the listener stats. Bye for now. (laughs) 